everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. Because that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about community. We're talking about how we're made for fellowship. We're made for needing relationship with each other. That's what we all need. We're made to need that. And so we're going to start a brand new series called Koinonia, Koinonia, uh, which is Koinonia is a Greek word. uh, And it means, Koinonia means sharing within a common community or fellowship. And so in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, so it's, it's found in the New Testament. There's about 20 times it's mentioned in the New Testament, and it's, it's the word that well, you'll see. So anytime you see, go back if you could, I'm sorry, um, go, the, the word fellowship uh, in the New Testament, it's that, it's that word, it's that Greek word koinonia, koinonia, okay? And, and it just, that's what it means, a sharing within a common community. It, it, there's, a, there's a common community, and it suggests, it, it suggests um, a bond stronger than biology and ideology, it suggests in the New Testament a bond that is stronger than biology and ideology. And so a couple examples of that in, in what Jesus wanted to make important and a priority in his ministry was is that he called 12 um, apprentices or 12 apostles. He, he gathered 12 uh, guys to, to be in community, to, to understand fellowship. And there was this bond that was formed within these 12 that, um, that was so unique and so special and so amazing. And, and Jesus is teaching us the, just the importance of having that community and having that bond uh, together. And so what's amazing about it is that um, he first, you know, that he says that um, the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. So Andrew, you know, met Jesus, and then he, he says, you need to meet Jesus too. And so Andrew introduces, you know, Peter to Jesus, and, and so P- Peter becomes a follower. And then it says, and James, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and his brother John, and so they, they, they come together. So it's Simon and Andrew, you got James and John, and they now come together in, in one. And then it says this in verse 3. It says, Philip and Bartholomew, um, and, and then Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. And so just some things about G- the group that Jesus called together. Uh, they were a mixed group of different biology. They were a mixed group of different ideology, okay? Um, and so even like Philip, completely, the first one of the first encounters that he had with Jesus, he completely dissed his own people. You know, because he basically, because, you know, you know, Philip was like, you need to come and, you know, and, and meet Jesus. And so he says, what, what good, what good comes from Nazareth? You know, they heard that Jesus came from Nazareth. He's like, what good comes from Nazareth? You know, like, how can you claim that the son of God, the, the Christ, the savior world could come from Nazareth? So, so Philip was just, you know, he completely disrespected Jesus on one of his first get-goes. Thomas, you know, Thomas known as the Doubting Thomas, right? And then you have Matthew, who was a tax collector. Now, you, you, if you've been in church long enough, you'll know kind of, you know, what a tax collector is. It's like, it's like, you know, an, an IRS agent that wants to audit you every year. 
that's the kind of like he was like can you imagine you know having to deal with you know the IRS every year this was you know and you're like I don't want to deal with any IRS I don't want any letters you know you don't want to see any right like don't send me anything right uh, and so uh, and so that Matthew was sort of in that category so we can th- kind of think in those terms but it was it was much worse much worse because Matthew was a was a Jewish man who basically became a traitor so he he sort of like, um, you know, decided that, you know, he was going to go against his own people because his own people were under the oppression of the Roman government. And so he, he decided that he was actually going to work for the Roman government. He, and that's what a tax collector was. They, they sort of partnered up with the Roman Empire. And, and, and as, as a result of that, Jews resented tax collectors. And they resented the fact that they were, you know, they traded, you know, they were traders of their own countrymen. They resented tax collectors because not not only would they collect taxes, which is nobody wants that, right? And first, off, but they would even collect more than what was owed. So they would they and this was a common practice. They would get the taxes or what they would be, they would tell people of what they owed, and then they would add more to it, and they would pocket that. And that was just a common practice for tax collectors, and everybody knew it. Well, as a result of them stealing money from people, you know, above and beyond even what was even owed based to the, to the Roman government, um, they were ostracized from their own community, and so they even created their own community to sort of move into a, a, a very rich upper class that all the poor and any even even though there wasn't really a middle class at that time, but all the poor were, were, you know, were just disgusted with. And so this is the, this is the feel, this is the tension of a tax collector. And so then it was, there was James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and then it goes on in verse four. Simon the zealot, Simon the zealot. Now, so you think about one side of the political spectrum, you have a, let's say, you know, Matthew, who is a radical left wing, okay? But then you have Simon, who was a zealot. Now, what was a zealot? A zealot was somebody who was zealous for their independence. They were, they were Jewish people who were zealous for their freedom. They, they wanted their freedom. They hated, hated, hated. You can't, I can't even emphasize that enough. Hated the Roman Empire. They hated the Roman government. And they certainly hated those who were traitors of their own countrymen. So now you have within Jesus's group, you have Matthew the tax collector and you have Simon the zealot. They were so zealous for their ideology that they would oftentimes move around. They were like, and, and uh, I don't know, they were, they, their, their belief system or their faith system was like a Pharisee. So they were very religious. So, so their, 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 you know, their intentions were good as far as like, they just wanted, they didn't want to be controlled by any government. They just wanted to be controlled by a theocracy that God was their, was their king, right? God was their Lord. And so they would do whatever it took in order for them to try to eliminate the control that they, that the Roman empire had. And so they would move around large crowds and they would, not all of them, many of them would would knife Roman soldiers. And so they would go and they would, they would try to kill with a dagger a Roman soldier and they would try to go and hide in, in the crowd. So can you imagine that Bible study? 
Can you imagine Matthew and Simon in the same small group? Do you think politics came up? Absolutely. And one extreme to another, one aisle and another. Like just, just that tension that was there, just that tension. But not only was it Matthew, the tax collector, you know, you had Philip who was dissing people, you know, you had, you know, Simon the zealot, but you even had Judas who you don't think Jesus knew he was going to portray him? I mean, people couldn't even think around Jesus. Jesus, like, it wasn't like they would say something and Jesus would call them out. Jesus would call people out on their thoughts. Like, I know what you're thinking. Like, people are like, "Ah, how do I not think around this guy? He knows what I'm thinking. You don't think Jesus knew? And this is the community that Jesus brought together with so many biological differences, so many ideological differences, yet Jesus brings this bond together. As a matter of fact, Paul says this. He says this about this koinonia bond that we have that is stronger than biology and stronger than ideology. Galatians says this. It says, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he gets specific. He says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he say, and his point is, when it comes to Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female, there are mass. Massive distinctions. There is a wide gap of differences between those groups. But when it comes to faith in Christ, they are all one. They are all one. They are one when it comes to the promises of God. Because he then says this in verse 29. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promises. And you remember in Sunday school, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of the, come on everybody, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, Father Abraham. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks. No, no, no. I was by myself. No help. <laughs> what, what God is saying is like, listen, you are, you are, you even claim, you can even claim the promises. You are as if you are a descendant of Abraham. And the promise that God gave to Abraham was, listen, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to even said, I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And he says, and by your seed, Abraham, by your seed, all nations, not just a nation, all nations of this world will be blessed. And Abraham had to scratch his head going, what are you talking about? And what he was talking about is through Abraham's seed came Jesus. And Jesus brought together koinonia, whether you're of bi- same biology or not, ideology or not, it's what the relationship with Jesus does brings all people into one. 
Koinonia is a marvel in Christian relationships. It's a marvel. You will, you, you'll marvel. I mean, I hope you already are, right? Thinking about and trying to do, it's just looking at the disciples, right? And just looking at the, the group, the eclectic group of disciples, the differences of, that they had. It was just a marvel that, that Jesus was able to bring them together in relationship, in relationship. And, and, and you see that in the church, when the church, um, when, when Peter preached uh, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came uh, upon thousands of people, thousands of people put their faith in Jesus, every tongue, tribe, nation, race, all, all people came together, put their faith in Jesus. And it says that as, when, they, when they gathered together, look what it says in Acts 2.42, okay, this is the, really the, the get-go, the, 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 the beginning of, of what we know as the church today. It says they were con- continually devoting themselves. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. So they didn't have a Bible then. So they just, they just relied on the teachings of the apostles. But why? Because they saw, they, they witnessed and they heard firsthand account of the life of Jesus, okay? They witnessed him for, the, for himself. They listened to his teachings. And probably at that time, they were already beginning to take notes. And so they would come together as a church and they would listen to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, koinonia, and to fellowship. They continually devoted themselves to that koinonia, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And then you see in in chapter four, it says this, and the congregation, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Are you, are you marveling at this? It goes on to say this, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. So you see, you're seeing within this koinonia, this fellowship, this community, it was that people were marveled by it. People were coming to faith and coming to Christ. Why? Because they were witnessing this community that was so distinct and so unique. And it wasn't because they shared the same biology. And it wasn't because they shared the same ideology. They shared one thing, and that was a resurrected Jesus. They shared a resurrected Jesus, and that's what bonded them. And as a result of that, there was great power. As a result of that, there was great grace that was upon them all. Let's continue reading. Verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Generous people. Verse 35. And lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each to to the extent that any had need. Verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite, a a Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles. And Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. Okay? So we, we now see somebody, which is interesting that Barnabas, who was a Levite, uh, according to law, according to Hebrew law, that they weren't even allowed to own land. So somehow Barnabas was able to acquire a piece of land for himself, even though he wasn't 
he wasn't even allowed to acquire land, which is just a Hebrew rule and probably something that you aren't interested in. Okay, and so <laughs> point is, point is, he was an encouragement. He was an encouragement. What, what did he do? Well, so he took, verse 37, he took this land that he owned and had no business owning. He owned a tract of land, so he sold it. He sold it. So you would think, boy, here's a guy that has land that shouldn't have land. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to keep it. This is my land. There's not a lot of Levites who have this land. And no, Barnabas's thinking was, I just want to encourage somebody. I just want to encourage somebody. And so he, he just wanted to be an encouragement. So he, his land that he owned, he sold it, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What an amazing, marvelous community of people with one heart and one mind. Are you marveled? And I hear people all the time saying, I wish my church was like the early church. I wish it was like the early, I wish, oh, I wish we were just more generous and more encouraging and, you know, that people just wanted to, okay, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Let's find out if you are. Okay, here, next chapter. That's all right. So here's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, one chapter later, okay? We just read Acts 4, Acts 5. Here's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They see Barnabas' action, and they're like, wow. Barnabas seems to be like a good dude. Like people like are patting him on the back and saying, wow, what an encouragement he is. Like they're calling him the son of encouragement. Like they just changed his name. Like he was Joseph, now he's called Barnabas. Like, like this guy's pretty amazing. So, so Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? What do they do? So it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So they're like, we're gonna do the same. We're gonna do the same. Verse two. And kept back, uh-oh, some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, like, you're like, it's his property. Like he sold it. He didn't give it all. Then this lady just held back from himself, verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? What are you doing? Why would you do that? And he even says, you don't even have to, verse four. Look what he says. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Like, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you lied to God. Like, Peter's going, it was your land. Like, you didn't have to, you didn't have to do it, but you, you conceived something in your heart. You, you saw something that, that somebody else did, and you thought, well, that's what I want. I, I want that recognition. I, I want that pat on the back. I want those accolades. I want people to look at me as if I'm spiritual. But they really weren't. I want people to see me as if I'm a Barnabas, but in reality, their heart really wasn't. And Peter's going, listen, 
You don't have to be where Barnabas is at in your faith. You, you had every opportunity just to hold on to your land. And if you didn't want to give, you know, you know, and say, you know, you, you could have said, this is what we kept some back for ourselves. You could have said that. But instead you lied. And you said you gave it all. But you didn't give it all. Look what happens to Ananias, verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died, and great fear came over all who heard about it. Are you sure you want to have the church like the early church? (laughs) Do you see how quickly it went from marvelous to messy? Do you see that it didn't take a whole lot of time for people to go, from one minute to go, this is great. Everybody's just, needs are being met and she's so generous and people are selling their land and laying it at the apostles' feet. To now, they're, they're Peter's bringing in the ushers going, take the body out, take the body out. You see how quickly? You know why? You know why it goes from marvelous to messy? You know why that happens? Because there's people involved. There's people involved. We're messy people. We're broken people. We're people that have come from different biology. We're people that see the world with different ideology. And it creates some messiness. Let's finish the story. Verse 6. And the young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Verse 7. Now an interval about three hours elapsed and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Where, where was she? <laughs> she was shopping. I heard it. Thank you. I didn't want to be offensive, but I heard somebody say, she was adding to cart, baby. She was on Prime. She was walking around Target. I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm getting offensive. Okay. I like Target too. I like Target too. She had three hours. She had no idea. So then look, verse eight, verse eight. And Peter responded to her, tell me. Now, if you're, if you're a parent, you'll get this. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. Now, if, when you're a parent and you ask your child a question, you already know the answer, don't you? <laughs> don't you? When you ask your child a question, most of the time, you already know the answer. And so he says, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. And she said, yes. Oh, it's getting messier. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately, verse 10, and immediately she collapsed at his feet and died, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I mean, come on, one minute, it's great power, great grace. Now, great fear. Great fear. Verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard about these things. 
Koinonia, koinonia has a messy reality. Koinonia has a messy reality. And let me give you another example. So you see the disciples, messy reality, right? You got Matthew the tax collector, you got Simon the zealot, messy reality, messy reality. But it can turn into something beautiful, it turns into something beautiful, okay? You see the early church, Acts 2, Acts 4, it's beautiful, the community's amazing, and then it turns messy quickly, Koinonia has a messy reality. Why? Because people are involved and people are messy, okay? Let me give you another. A church in Philippi, okay? A church in Philippi. You can read about the origin story of the church in Philippi in Acts 16. I would encourage you to do that. But it was a, it's an amazing, beautiful story of what God did to, to begin this church in Philippi. It, it, it started with a rich woman, who her name was Lydia, who she was a part of a ladies' Bible study that Paul interrupted, by the way. Now, Paul was, was bold because I'm never gonna interrupt a ladies' Bible study, okay? Okay? I'll show up if you want me to, but I don't, I don't really want to, to be honest with you, okay? Because before I know it, I'm sharing my feelings, okay? I'm, I'm in tears. I'm getting, you know, so... Listen, this, so Paul, man, he was bold. So he, he shows up to this lady's Bible study. Lydia's there, and Paul begins to preach the gospel, and Lydia comes to know Christ as her Savior. And then she not only opens her heart to the Lord, but she now is beginning to open up her home to the Lord. And so she opens up her home. She probably had a large home based on her business that she was in. And so she was inviting Paul and his companions into, you know, her house. And the, even the scripture says in Acts 16 that she insisted, she insisted that Paul and his com companions come over. And so the church starts and then Paul and his time there in Philippi, there was this young slave girl that was, you know, demon possessed and she had the ability and she was a slave girl as well. Well, why? Because she had an ability to tell people's future. She was a fortune teller. And so she was making, so the people that owned her were making lots of money on her. And so she uh, is following Paul around in that city, basically saying why Paul is there. And she would say things like, he's here to proclaim the, the good news of the gospel and to tell you about the most high God. And he, she was doing this for days, for days. It literally says, this is in the Bible. You should read it. It literally says that Paul was annoyed with her. Paul was annoyed. He's like, stop. You're blowing my cover. Like, I'm trying to be like cooler about this and you're really just making this look bad. And so, and so Paul says, in the name of Jesus, I cast you out and the, the spirit of, uh, the evil spirit is cast out of this slave girl and she becomes a part of this church. Well, as you can imagine, the owners of this girl do not like the fact that they can no longer make money off of her. And so they get Paul and his companions all roughed up and then eventually arrested and put into prison. And the, the likeliness of, of that situation is, is that Paul, they were really just protecting Paul because Paul probably would have got killed on the streets in Philippi if he wasn't put into a prison cell. 
So Paul and his companion Silas are in a prison cell. You've probably heard this story before. It was midnight. They're chained you know, in shackles in an inner prison cell. No place to go to the bathroom. No place to shower. Um, probably dead bodies still in this cave cell that they're in. And they start singing at midnight. Remember the story? They start singing hymns of praise at midnight. And when that happens, the earth begins to shake. God begins to move heaven and earth. And the prison doors fly open. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, comes running in and he's now going to kill himself. Why? Because he's, th- he's thinking, wait a second, on my watch, everybody has probably escaped because all the prison cell doors are still, oh, are all open. And so, and so Paul, before this prison uh, jailer, before he kills himself, Paul yells out, we are all still here. We're all still here. And the man just blown away about what he's witnessing and what, what he's witnessed and what he's experienced basically says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul says, you call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. And the Philippian jailer, and it says that him and his whole household came to know Jesus as their savior. So the origin of the church in Philippi was a rich lady named Lydia, a slave girl, we don't know her name, and a Philippian jailer and his household. Talk about an eclectic group of people under one mind and one heart under the banner of a resurrected Jesus. Is that beautiful or what? So the church takes off in Philippi, but not without it being messy. And you can read a little bit about this in Philippians in the, in the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. And the reason why Paul wrote this letter to this church in Philippi, because it was starting to get messy. Starting to get messy. And what happened was, is that Paul's warning them. He's, being, he's saying to them, listen, beware of the dogs. Now you're like, what? What's the problem with dogs? Like, I have a dog. Uh, I have a pet. You know, Fido. I don't know your dog's name. Okay, and so what he means by that is he's referring to a group of people. They were called the Judaizers, okay? And he describes them in three different ways. He describes them as dogs, evil workers, and of the false circumcision, okay? In summary, these were people who came into the church they were, they were called Judaizers. They came into the church and they began to teach Jesus, faith in Jesus, plus good works. Faith in Jesus plus good works. They would say, you, you have to, you can put your faith in Jesus, but you also need to get circumcised. But you also need to follow all of the laws. 300 and some laws. And so Paul's calling them dogs. Why? Because they were barking falsehoods. They were barking falsehoods. They were evil workers telling lies, telling people that they had to do and follow the the Jewish laws. That's what was happening within this church. And it was starting to get confusing 
for this church in Philippi. Not only that, but there was also some inner tension that was taking place within the church. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 4.2. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Okay, so here's, here's Paul writing this letter and there was apparently two women, okay, Euodia and Syntyche who were fighting with one another. They were, they were battling with one another. They couldn't get along. They, they must have had different points of view on things, different ideologies of things. They, they definitely came from different backgrounds and different experiences. And so what started out in that church, something beautiful that God brought together, it quickly, quickly turned messy. It quickly turned messy. What do we do in that reality? Because the reality is, and you already know this and you've already heard this, there's no perfect church and why isn't there any perfect church? Because there's no perfect people. And it creates, and it creates, and I'm, and I'm, the last two years have taught me how ideology can bring so much division and so much dissension. I've had people, we've had people leave this church because they thought that I was on the left side of the aisle. I've had leave, people leave this church because they thought I was too on the right side of the aisle. It's true, true. People have accused me of being this one way and people have accused me of being this way. And you know what I say? I just like being in the messy middle. And that's confusing to some of you. And you don't understand some of that. And I, understand, and I get that. But I just rather stay where Jesus stayed in the messy middle. In the messy middle. And so here you have Euodia and Syntyche and their differences. And Paul's telling them, listen, ladies, ladies, live in harmony. Live in harmony. And it's not just a lady thing. Guys, fellas, Live in harmony. And here's what Paul's advice is to how to get to, how do we get to this beautiful koinonia of that it's stronger than biology, that it's stronger than ideology. How do we get to this place where Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot, can come together? How do we get there? How do we get there with Euodia and Syntyche? And how do we get back to, you know, Acts 2 and not live in Acts 5 world? Right? How do we get to that place? Paul tells us how. In this book, Philippians, in this messy church, Philippians 2, here's what he says. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any koinonia, of the Spirit. If any affection and compassion, here's what he says in verse two. 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then look what he says, verse three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. He's not done. Verse four. Do not merely look at your own personal interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this attitude. Have this mindset in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know how we, Market Street Church, can get to a place of koinonia? It's by having this attitude. Having this attitude. It's having the attitude that Jesus had. And the attitude and the mindset of Jesus is what our attitude and what our mindset needs to be in order for us to find that place of community that God has called us to. And I love the distinctions. And I love the differences. And I love the different backgrounds and experiences. And I love even the different ideologies, even though you drive me nuts sometimes. But what we have in common needs to be far stronger than all of those, right? Yes. This is the attitude that we need to have. And Jesus' mindset was simple. Are you ready? Serve one another. Serve one another. Before you consider your own interests, you look at the interests of someone else. You don't do anything out of selfishness. As a matter of fact, how Jesus served us, and Jesus even said why he came. He said, I didn't come to be served. Did he deserve to be served? For sure. But he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And the way that I serve is I gave my life as a ransom for many. You're here. Today, because Jesus served you. He thought about you before he thought about himself. He was selfless. He wasn't selfish. And he made a sacrifice. Hello, America? Western culture Christian? But my schedule, I got to be at this event and I got to do this job and I got to work overtime and I got to this. You're going to have to make sacrifices. Something's got to die in our lives if we're going to get to a place of koinonia, self-discovery. You know what happened when Jesus, he, he was selfless. He, sat, he offered a sacrifice. And you know what it says in Philippians 5? It says that God highly exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself. And he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. 
And as a result of that, God highly exalted him. And he gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. By the way, my suggestion is you do that now before it's too late. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if you haven't confessed Jesus as your Lord, you will. You will. And as a result of that, Jesus discovered, he already knew, but we begin to discover who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. That our identity, here's the the point, our identity shouldn't be wrapped up in American culture or our biological upbringing or background. It's not our identity. Your identity is first and foremost that you are a son and daughter of of God. You are an heir of God and you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And when you can and I can get to that place, it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people you know want to view you as. Your identity is found in Christ Jesus. It's self-discovery like you've never had and experienced before. So I don't take, when it comes to serving, I don't take my cue from you and you shouldn't take your cue from me. Jesus, Jesus is where I take my cue for how I serve you. You can write that rhyme down or take a picture. That's pretty solid. (laughs) Jesus is where I take my cue for how I serve you. You, how I serve you. And the way that the church did that and what created the koinonia fellowship culture within the, within the faith community of Christianity, within the church, was that they one anothering one another. They were one anothering one another. They were considering others before themselves. They were being selfless. They were serving. They were being sacrificial. They were one another and one another. And the Bible gives us dozens of one another's. We'll get into some of these as we go throughout the week. Let me just show you all of them. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be hospitable. Be compassionate to one another. Be devoted to one another. Be kind to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Encourage one another, forgive one another, give generously to one another, submit to one another. That's not just for wives. Husbands, mind your own business. You'll get that in a second. (laughs) Honor one another. You know the thing is about these right here? Here's the thing about these. We We can't practice these in this setting, right? Can you imagine if you showed up in this setting as we're in right now and I said, hey, Christine, do you mind standing up and confessing your sins to one another? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Christine's like, not a chance in Hades. Not a chance. Like, you're, we, you can't do that here. No, but you would never come back. 
If you showed up and said, oh, he just asked me to confess my sins. Like, you wouldn't come back. So I want you to come back. I want you to come back. But you know where you'll be willing, and I know, I know it sounds crazy, but you know where you'll be willing to confess your sins? Would be in a small, trusted community of people that you're doing life with, that you're growing in faith with, and then you'll get to a place where you say, I can say anything to any one of these people, and I know that it's confident with them. Right? Right? So koinonia, koinonia, next slide please. Koinonia only works in the presence of a small community. This is too big. This is too big. But koinonia works in a small community. Koinonia, next one, koinonia only works when you practice it in a small community. So let me give you a picture and then I'll close, okay? Because we got to get to a picnic, okay? Because you, you want to get one of these shirts. If you show up to this picnic, you're going to get one of these shirts and you can tie-dye it if you want, okay? Yeah, yeah. And I'm wearing the lion's hat because I'm optimistic, okay? Just so you know, just wearing okay? I shouldn't be. They get me every year, okay? Let me show you how it works, okay? Here's how it works when it comes to all relationships, but it's certainly within the relationships of the church, okay? Here's where, here's where it starts, and maybe you, you remember this. So it starts with, first, first click, the honey, what I call the honeymoon hill. The honeymoon hill. You remember that stage, husbands, wives? This is fun. I love her. She's perfect in all of her ways. She's amazing. This is, this is how it works with it. And, 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 and some of you come to this church. And I remember when you first came to this church, you're like, you're like, this is the best church. You're the best pastor I've ever had. And then five months later, I hate you. <laughs> it's happened to me. I know, I know. No, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I've been doing this for 20 years. Like, I I'm, I'm now have a calloused heart. No. Um, <laughs> then comes, you know how this works, the letdown, right? The letdown. Oh, you start to see, oh, Pastor Chris, oh, hmm, he's not as perfect as I thought. He didn't call me back within 24 hours that he should have called me back on. Hmm. You, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And I don't mean to do that, okay? I'm sorry, all right? I have a busy life. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. You're important to me. And then you get, I know, thank you for preaching my own sermon. Thank you. I'm getting preached. My wife does that to me all the time. Then you get to the valley, right? What I call reality valley. Reality valley. Do we have reality? There it is. Reality valley. This stinks. And this is the point when you get to a community, in a community, that you're like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this anymore. It was good at first. Like, Pastor Chris was interesting and funny, and then he, all of a sudden he got boring and not so interesting, and he goes way too long, preaches way too long. It's just, 
I know, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. And do you get to Reality Valley and this stinks? But then, if you want to get to where we need to go, we gotta start serve. We gotta serve. And a part in serving is, is that we gotta make some sacrifice. And we start making some sacrifice, and then we become selfless, and then we have some self-discovery. And then before you know it, here's where we find, and this is where koinonia happens. It happens on Marvelous Mountain. I came up with this all by myself, people. Like, I don't just work on Sundays, okay? I spend all week working on these things, okay? But this is where we need to journey to. We. A koinonia, a common community, sharing together. And koinonia community is real messy. But if we stick with it, you will discover that it's truly a beautiful, marvelous mess. Marcus Street Church, I can't speak for any other church. Marcus Street Church, this is where we need to go. It's where we need to go. But it's gonna take serve, serving each other, one anothering, one another, one anothering, one another, one anothering, one another in all the different ways that we do that. And it's sacrifice, it's selflessness, and then you'll have self-discovery, and then you're on marvelous mountain, marvelous mountain. Once again, I've gone way too long. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, you bring together exactly who you want to bring in community. It is not by accident that we are in this room together. It is sovereignly ordained by you to bring this fellowship. Those that are in the room and those that are watching from home, Lord, we're so grateful that we together can go about this life, doing life together and growing together in our faith through the beauty of it and through even the mess of it. And God, I pray, Lord, that we are a church that strives to be a beautiful, beautiful, marvelous mountain of some mess, but ultimately it's just we're just amazed and marveling at the fact that you have brought us together in this community of faith to sharpen one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens. Lord, we thank you for this, this community that we have. And we, we wanna be open to the rest of the community and around and inviting people into this beautiful fellowship that we have. I pray that that's who we are. We're open-handed, open-armed to whoever wants to come and experience this beautiful mess that you brought together. In Jesus' name, amen.